1: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. Today we'll be talking once again about fashion and style. we we'll be talking to Elizabeth Bukar, whose new book, Highest Fashion, How Muslim Women Dress, looks at issues of Muslim looks at issues of fashion and style in everyday life. This is a new take sort of on Islamic studies, and I'm really excited to talk to her today. So she is associate professor of philosophy and religion at Northeastern University. She was previously assistant professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, and she's a religious ethicist who studies sexuality, gender, and moral transformations within Islamic and Christian traditions. Um, She received her PhD in religious ethics from the University of Chicago and is the author of many articles and several books, including The Islamic Veil, A Beginner's Guide, *A Religious Ethics in a Time of Globalism, uh, and the book we'll be talking about today, Pious Fashion, How Muslim Women Dress. Um, out 2017 from Harvard University Press. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. So we always start off the podcast with a question about your intellectual biography. Sort of, how did you come to academia? Oh gosh, that's such a long, <laughs> such a long answer to that. Um,
0: so uh, I didn't mean to end up in the academy. Um, I don't have like family members who have been professors. Um, in fact, my dad was first generation in college. Um, but after college, um, and actually I never studied religion, don't tell anybody, or ethics, really, in college as an undergrad. Um, and my area of specialization was Latin American studies, so I'm totally far away from that. But after college, I worked in D.C. for a number of years doing NGO work and especially work around um, women's reproductive rights. Um, and I kind of fell into religion that way, um, especially working in Latin America. The Catholic Church is a big player on that scene. So if you want to talk about safe motherhood or access to contraception, you have to engage with Catholic moral theology. And that was so interesting to me. I was just really had a lot of fun thinking about and trying to work within that system and find out what the loopholes were and what were the different arguments that women were raising up or leveraging sort of for their own um, political agendas. And that's what um, sent me to grad school. Um, but huh, not so fast, because when I applied to grad school, I applied to public health degrees, religion degrees and law and law programs, because um, I was doing that work at that sort of like that sort of intersection of those three. And I decided on religion because when I had all these applications or all these acceptances in front of me, that was the one I wanted to do next. I was like, I don't really want to learn about torts. I'm already kind of doing public health. I really want to like dive into religion. Um, So that's why I started uh, a master's actually at Chicago and thought I was just going to bail after two years and do my law degree at Chicago as well. And then kind of just was hooked and... Very quickly became a comparativist, um, working in Christian and Islamic traditions. Um, that just follows a more safe, uh, not in more safe, that is like a more natural place for me to be. I didn't want to speak from within tradition. I liked working on um, between them and thinking comparatively. Um, so it was sort of a mistake in some ways, um, but I was pretty quickly hooked as soon as I um, started, uh, I guess, once, I, especially once, once I was in the PhD program.
1: So I absolutely love the book. Congratulations on it. It's absolutely gorgeous. And one thing I think that sort of is a challenge for anyone who deals with fashion, um, especially in the contemporary, is that fashion moves both slowly and quickly. I think we know this from everyday life, just sort of absor- observing how trends come in and out of fashion. I mean, there's that um, that that um, notion that things that come out of style are going to come back into style in about five or six years. Um, and it also moves in, in multiple directions. There's, there's no sort of, I mean, we can say that it's cyclical, but it's not also unidirectional. It's, I mean, there's this great moment at the beginning of the book where you reference when a student um, brought up a moment from the film The Devil Wears Prada about sort of how different colors move through the fashion food chain. Um, so what was the genesis of this project specifically?
0: Yeah, I mean, the what you're sort of raising is the difficulty in sort of um, trying to study fashion. And I think that's why I sort of struggle with how to write the book. But it I think so. I mean, the question is really sort of complicated. So it's one question is like, how does fashion first come on my radar? And that really is by going and doing totally unrelated fieldwork in Iran for a summer and wearing hijab as part of sort of local um, requirement by law and finding that. That was, even though I like understood it and I knew where it came from, the experience itself and the body experience was something different and a little jarring for me. Um, so that was sort of my first sort of like, huh, this is like more complicated than I thought sort of moment. I don't think at that time I had any sort of plan to write a book about this. And if you notice, I mean, from what you just read, it's like my second book about Pious um, Fashion in some ways. So I had this sort of introductory general audience, Beginner's Guide to the Islamic veil, And that was like not really ever really an intentional or part of my big plan. Uh, I mean, part of it is if you work in gender and Islam, you get asked to talk about the veil a lot. Um, people are obsessed with it. They want to they want to interrogate it. They want to know what your opinion about it is. So partly I write the book out of that sort of moment of frustration, like, ah, uh, like certainly certainly we can say, or certainly we can say something more interesting about this. Um, so that comes out of that moment of frustration and not wanting to, or wanting to counter to this idea that, um, that Muslim women's dress is always about men's control of them or some sort of sign of radicalism or some sort of um, scary thing to particularly non Western, non, non-Muslim Westerners. But I also come at this particular project sort of from a, a sort of more positive place, like a moment of sort of inspiration. Like, so even though I wasn't really working on this issue necessarily as my central focus, I've spent 10 years working on, in various Muslim majority contexts and I just became a fan of modest fashion myself and so I kind of see it as it's and having an aesthetic of its own right and you know it plays with femininity and masculinity it has embellishment but it's also simple at times it covers skin it exposes skin volume and fit and all those kinds of things I wanted to be able to talk about in a book as a way to get at totally different issues that maybe weren't so central to clothing construction or the fabric, but it was a way to talk about colonialism and consumption and piety and gender in uh, maybe a fun way, but also with stories that would make um, some of these more theoretical things that I want to teach my students, for example, make them stick a little bit more because there's something concrete that people can kind of jump into. So that was a long answer to the question, but I think the genesis of this book is way back in 2004, that first trip to Iran, this particular book, when I really sat down to write it, was like, oh, I'm so frustrated and so angry. And yet I'm also really inspired and want to be in this material and think about it and talk about it also in a fun way so people can understand how it's also interesting and pretty and um, striking.
1: One of, the, in a, one of the sort of innovations of the book, and again, of books like Rena Lewis's Muslim Fashion and um, in Middle Eastern Studies, um, Marie Grace Brown's Khartoum at Night, which looks at Imperial, um, imperial Sudan and Fashion, is that, um, and this is to borrow um, Marie Grace Brown's term, is that you're all beginning to look at textiles and clothing as texts. And I think in Islamic studies, which is so focused on Islamic law or on Quranic exegesis, this is truly an innovation. I think this will start to push for more integration of social history and sociology um, into Islamic studies. So I wanted to sort of start off with a very basic question of how do you understand fashion and what counts as Islamic dress? Because I think there are different interpretations of that term and it can be used to empower, but also to control, as, as you alluded to earlier. Yeah, so
0: I, first I would want to say that the issue you're talking about in Islamic studies is also a certain sort of challenge we have in religious ethics, where a lot of the work in religious ethics for a, sort of the main part of like the last 50 years was really focused on texts and thinkers. And so even to do um, ethnography, it got me sort of accused of being like a journalist and sort of not being serious. Certainly everyday practices was seen as um, maybe... Uh, valuable in dealing with um, ethical debates and texts and then clothing of course yes clothing is trivial clothing especially women's clothing it's um, it's always been accused of being trivial so there's so this hump to get over to get people to sort of take it seriously uh, in terms of what I understand is fashion I really was trying to think about a way to narrow the focus of this book and fashion I'm really letting the women I'm sort of collaborating with and study to find that. So I really, when I got together, like a focus group, for example, the criteria for entering into that focus group was not that I thought your outfit was cute. So it was someone that themselves wore, some, wore an Islamic form of dress and thought that fashion was interesting and were interested in, in sort of engaging and um, putting, uh, sort of combining sort of what we think of or what they thought of as an Islamic form of modesty with a current global fashion trends. So, fashion to me is like the, I mean, all clothing you could argue is fashion. In this particular book, I'm looking at women's sort of debates and practices who are really thinking about looking modern and cool and aesthetically pleasing and wearing flattering and attractive styles. Um, what counts as Islamic dress is an even more complicated question, right? So you could just say anything that any Muslim wears is Islamic dress. Um, but, and again, on this book, this book is really written not for like the Muslim woman who like has a cute outfit on, like she doesn't need me to talk to her about pious fashion or Islamic dress. She knows what it is. My audience is much more focused on non-Muslims who are sort of intrigued, but also just don't understand the sort of range of practices and how dress functions in Muslim communities and Muslim majority communities, the same way it functions every, in some ways, the same way it functions everywhere. So, um, you know, I have expectations, you have expectations put on you as people in the academy, as gender, like we have to perform a certain form of, um, femininity at the AAR, um, in front of the classroom, when you're on an interview, um, you're, your lipstick shouldn't be too red, your skirt shouldn't be too short, your shoe shouldn't be too aggressive. And these are similar sort of um, constraints put on um, Muslim women, whether or not they wear a headscarf or not. And so those are political. So it was just a way to sort of um, push back against this assumption that like Muslim women are so different and what they wear is so different. Um, Because I think, I'm hoping that by the end of the book, that is, doesn't, doesn't feel that way to people who enter the book that way.
1: No, I definitely feel like there's that, um, that aspect of the book, I think it makes you think about your own context and sort of the way your dress is dictated to you, both by other women, but also by, by men. I think that, I think that you really complicate this notion of where fashion and style and, and, um, clothing conventions comes from. Um, so on that note, you, one of sort of the organizational aspects of the book is that you jump between three different locales with different terminologies for describing dress. So there's Disettur for Turkey. um, There's the Mansu and the Chador in Iran and the Jidabab in Indonesia. So I was wondering if you could break those down to us and introduce us to them um, and then incorporate some more of them because that's certainly not as inclusive as everything you've described and included in the book.
0: Yeah, so actually that was very fortuitous in some ways that I could have three different words um, to describe highest fashion in these three locations. And I think it helps to get at the issue of – um, it reflects that these practices are also diverse. So, uh, we start with, um, Iran, for example, which is the first chapter in the book, actually in Iran, Muslim women's clothing is referred to more, um, broadly as hijab. So they take that word that is, you know, in the chronic passage, whether or not that chronic passage actually has to talk about women's clothing or not, is, of course, debatable, but hijab is the word that's to, adopted sort of to discuss the head to toe, um, um, Sharia based, and that's sort of how in the penal code you have to wear Sharia based or um, dress. But what counts as hijab, and what counts as proper hijab, because that's what the authorities are interested in, is really not really codified anywhere. So it's up to women to decide. And the two things you just mentioned are kind of a different the spectrum. So, uh, or at least from the outside look like out, just different end of the spectrum. So a chador is a very traditional head to toe black covering. Um, uh, you know, covers most of the woman's body. But on the other hand, it's very flexible. You can throw it on over anything when you go outside versus a more contemporary practice, which is to wear an, an overcoat called a mantos, some sort of sari, or some sort of headscarf, um, different versions of that as well. And it, each one of those different combinations in different contexts can signal different things. Um, And again, even a chador, like a chador can be a very expensive piece of fabric, which signals more than anything, not necessarily more religious piety or more conservativeness. Um, or it could be a sign of professionalism and formality. And depending on what, how your manteau is cut and how your headscarf is styled, again, to women, those signal different things in terms of your your class, your, um, your position vis-a-vis the Iranian revolution, maybe. Um, and a lot of those things are not readable until you kind of get on the ground and start asking um women and men about, about the different sort of pieces of clothing. So that's just that's just a run. And then in Indonesia, the jilbab, which again another w- word adopted from the on which um a cloak, but that's the most common word used to describe head to toe, lots of other words for a head scarf, and then um, you know, sort of full body. Um it, it, it just they when they say they think everyone in, in Indonesia it's very interesting, Every, everyone thinks that everyone in Iran is walking around in Chador all the time, um, or some sort of niqab, which is also not true. Um, and part of it, I think of that is the use of the word. They don't use the word hijab as much in Indonesia. And then Turkey, which I know you're much more familiar with as, as well. I mean the tesator is really a, a much more modern, a newer word that's used to describe particularly fashion sort of Fashion veiling, or fashion um, leaning, or fashion interested form of Muslim dress, sort of as a way to carve out a space for a new version, um, uh, sort of instead of a more darker version of, was of a wasn't of sorry another Islamic dress in Turkey that maybe didn't read as um, sort of cosmopolitan. So all these these words are used differently, and then of course the styles that we see also differ based on local, you know, aesthetics and styles and cultures and cultures of style, um, as Lewis would say. Um, I mean, I could go, it's interesting, I had a phone, I had an interview once with the New York Times, so they asked me to give them, and it's not just the New York Times, I've had this asked by a number of media outlets, can you just tell us the five styles of uh, Muslim dress? And the answer is no, there's not five. Well, can you just give us the five words used to describe, the five Arabic words used to describe Muslim dress? Well, there's not just five. Um, And part of understanding the the diversity of the practice is understand it's actually even called different things in different locations.
1: Yeah, and I think oftentimes people don't realize that these trends, um, yeah, I think first off, people don't realize that the majority of the world's Muslims are not Arab and that, As, as you mentioned, the case of a word like Tesetur, that's a, that's, that's a Turkish word that isn't used in quite the same way in Arabic. It, it might have similar implications just on the basis of meaning because there are similarities between the languages and that word does come from Arabic. But again, this is a very different style. Another thing people assume is that, you know, religion sort of, and this is a misconception even amongst my Muslim communities, is that um, sort of Islam flows from the Arab lands or the Arabic speaking lands. And that's not always the case. Um, I remember when, I mean, just sort of the oral histories I have from my family, there was a time in the 70s when people were saying, oh, well, we're getting all of, like, Iran is setting the fashion style, like the hijab, like the the headscarf styles, to use a very broad term. And then I remember, uh, even right now, I mean… Um, Turkey right now is setting a lot of the trends for the Arabic speaking world and vice versa. I mean, they're, they're influencing each other. And I actually, that's another thing I loved about the book is not just the fact that you sort of bring our focus away from, um, Arabic speaking lands, um, which is the traditional focus of a lot of Islamic studies, but also that you really tap into sort of the global networks of fashion. Um, so just sort of how, you know, uh, people are dressing and evoking punk rock trends in Iran and how people are sort of aspiring to what's on the runways in Milan um, in Turkey and and vice versa. Um, And then also incorporating their own local traditions and customs and reinterpreting them in different ways. So um, I actually wanted to ask that. What sort of inspired the comparison between these different locales? Yeah.
0: I mean, really the reason that you just said for the, why it sort of speaks to you, or why you're happy that I did it, is my. It was very intentional, right? I really wanted to decenter, or or not sort of have our entire focus on Islam in the quote unquote Middle East, or as sort of the closer we get to Mecca, the more really Islamic it is, and the more legitimate it is, and that all authority comes from a certain um. A, a, And I mean, I start again from someone whose background is in Iranian studies. um, And then this particular book I happened to do happened to be in Indonesia for a month. And I was like, whoa, it looks totally different here. And no one is like hardly anybody in Islamic studies. Certainly 10 years ago, no one was really paying attention to Indonesia, which doesn't make any sense because it's such a huge population. Um, And then Turkey sort of becomes this great sort of third part of of a nice sort of comparison between, be, again, all outside of the Arab world, all trying to decentralize what Islamic authority looks like and show that it's not all about styles from the Gulf or from Cairo being exported, which I actually think a lot of the literature produced, uh, in, or some literature rather, I should say, produced in the US about the increase of veiling globally really took sort of Egypt as the center of, or the, the, the sort of ground zero of, not to mix my metaphors, I guess, um, but so the beginning of that sort of um, worrisome Islamic creep, and that's probably been so much great scholars, but the more you look sort of outside of of that region of the world, the more you can see that the story is more complicated. So again, that was... That was intentional. I was telling someone if I was going to write this book today, if I was starting the book today, I would focus entirely in the U.S. though. Um, I think right now we need to sort of think about not just that like Islam is in the Middle East. Islam is also just not something that's there. It's here. And thinking about the different sort of styles that are emerging um, in the U.S. would be really interesting to do. Um, but like this was sort of a baby step to get us at least out of the, the sort of quote unquote Muslim world as its own as if it's only in a particular region. Yeah.
1: The first thing I did when I got your book actually um, was I went to the index and I looked for a specific um Vlogger, a British um, Muslim vlogger, And I found her name, uh, Dina Tokyo. And I was, just, I mean, I just sort of expect to find her in many of these studies because she's sort of the preeminent vlogger. She's actually how I found out, I found out about Rena Lewis's book. Um, and she's incorporated into that book because that book does focus on Western Europe and North America and some, to some extent. Um, so one thing I loved about your book is it does very much, I mean, you've referenced this before and that you're, by training a religious ethicist, but that this reads as, this is an an ethnography. And actually, it's very easy to read. It's very easy to sort of go along with because you incorporate your own experiences and use um, first person pronouns. So one thing that really struck me about the ethnographic experience you have is that there are these moments of code switching between different cultures, between, um, you know, you go from Iran to Turkey, and all of a sudden, there's this culture shock. And I think To many people, that would be like, what? But they're both Muslim cultures, and that would be the assumption. But I mean, these are totally different cultures that speak different languages, and as you demonstrate in the book, have different interactions with fashion. So I wanted to ask you about sort of the research trips you did, you keep referencing them. Um, Were these more intermittent? Were these longer? Um, What sort of work did you do? And how did you adjust as you switched from place to place? And especially because you do a tremendous job, as you referenced repeatedly um, throughout this interview, at demonstrating that these places are unique and very different from one another
0: yeah so the only sort of hard transition I had, which was directly from one of these locations to the other is the is the case you're talking about where i I talk about in the preface of the book where I was in Iran and decided to like sort of almost holiday in Turkey on the way back as sort of an afterthought and that uh That was really hard. I was used to having to be covered. It wouldn't have made sense to be covered in Istanbul um, in 2004 as a Mm non-Muslim woman. It just would have been very weird. And I was really surprised at how uncomfortable I was having men touch my hand when they gave me um, change suddenly, having, you know, be pressed up against men and women on the bus versus in, in Iran, you're literally in the back of the bus and you're segregated, having wearing... Um, not having the protection of sort of my hijab when I that I had when I was traveling alone in Iran, that so that was sort of the moment I was like, huh, this is all right, this is really different. And part of the way it's really different is because of the way that I'm dressed and what my expectations are for women dressed here. And, and I guess that's another place to think about the genesis for the book. Other, I mean, other than that, um, I sort of spaced out the research trips uh, enough that it was my transition, my culture shock was mostly from home to there. Um, and after that initial trip to Iran, the second stint I did actually remotely because of um, visa difficulties, which I had a wonderful um, research assistant on the ground there, and then also worked with women that I sort of networked with through uh, remote interviews and, and kind of focus groups kind of online. Turkey I did over a number of years, um, kind of just going back every spring for the sort of spring season um, and doing other bits of research. And then the Indonesia was again, a little bit over a month of where I knew what I was doing at that point. I knew I was writing this book and I knew I, and I set things up ahead of time. And so it sort of was very short term. Um, but this is sort of the issue or the challenge of being a comparativist is you can't be embedded for 18 months in one location. Um, but sort of, um, sort of jumping in and jumping out and, um, trying to think about what can there's there's obviously a lot of value for doing this great deep embedded um, ethnographic work but there's also something that different that you can do by doing um, this sort of comparative work so a lot of the research was really designed with this comparative project always in mind um, I think the other thing that you mentioned which I think is sort of was, was fun about this book was sort of discovering my much more, there's much more of me in this book, which is also a little embarrassing, but it's discovering my voice as a writer who is willing to say, oh, I just totally like messed up. I showed up at this location thinking I'm wearing a totally appropriate outfit and totally did it wrong. And... And that's literally, I mean, that's what happened because because of the sort of misunderstandings um, that I myself, or the steep learning curve, I guess, that I was sort of going through. And I'm hoping that by by sort of sharing my embarrassment or these moments of, I'm thinking of the the scarf, this really expensive scarf I purchased in Turkey that I talk <laughs> about my embarrassment of buying this scarf, and I can never, I've worn this scarf like twice in my entire life, and it. You know, there's so much emphasis put on brands in Turkey and I thought I was going to walk around in this with a scarf on and to, and I just couldn't do it. Like it was just, it was, I just messed up the whole interaction and spent, you know, more than anything I've more than money than I've spent on anything I've ever owned. I was just totally duped by the whole consumption apparatus there. Like that's embarrassing, but it's also a really interesting learning moment for me. And so I tried to put as many moments of that as, as I could like that in the book. So that, I mean, those are the stories that I tell my students, Um, and I realized that those stories might also be interesting for other people to hear rather than me like banging over the head about why consumption is powerful, how it works. Be like, yeah, and I was duped too. And here's how I was duped and totally embarrassing. And now I understand it, um, through that experience.
1: there's, there's actually a case where you buy, uh, I think it's a Shador at some point, or is it a Manta, um, in Iran? And you, you, again, reference that you didn't wear it. And I think these moments just make. I think they're both very relatable as women who – I think we often buy something and we don't – I'm sure men have these experiences too, but this is something that I hear about mostly from women where you buy something and then you don't wear it because something has changed in the – you know, in, in style and trend or you just are opting more for comfort in certain cases or or it's – I don't know. They're just all of these different balances and, and, and that, that we go through when it we decide what we wear. Um, and in particular, I mean, all these moments of code switching just remind me of whenever I go to a new Muslim country as a Muslim, I sort of test out the waters for a bit. My 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 um, my instinct is always to go more conservative until I can figure out sort of, oh, can I show my knees here? Do I feel comfortable as a Muslim doing this around other Muslims? So I I, I, I think many researchers, whenever we go to different countries because it's the nature of our work, feel that. Another thing I think is that... Um, as you said, fashion just changes so quickly and also slowly at the same time. It makes sense that you did these these trips and you you you, did, you weren't embedded for eighteen months. I think this project would not have been as rich without it. Um, actually, I wanted to mention that I when I got the book and I received it, um, I opened it and there were these. I mean, the cover is gorgeous. Um, there were these. But then you open it and there are these gorgeous color photographs inside. And you don't see that in academic books because that's expensive. And academic presses tell you that that's expensive. Um, So I was wondering, what led you to include these pictures?
0: Yeah, so, you know... I really fought for these pictures. And so the book is beautiful because Harvard press just did a beautiful job with it. Um, and the, the cover is actually an interesting example of people who understand books more than me picking the cover photo. So this was the cover photo is one of my photographs that I had um, in the book, but it's not the one I would have chosen for the cover. We sort of joke about it as, um, or I joke about it a little bit as the J crew image. Like to me, I'm like, Oh, it's camel. It's black. It's like, it looks like, some, it doesn't look, um, doesn't sort of bring you to location or anything. And that was sort of the point. They're like, yes, it's camel. It's black. It's timeless. It's just the book. The subtitle is just how Muslim women dress. Like there's nothing weird and exotic about it, which was totally the right, um, image for the the cover. And I would never have figured that out with the press's help. Um, that said I did really fight for the photographs because it was a book about fashion, They agreed very quickly that I could include photographs, um, and they agreed very quickly that I could make them, you know, close to full page as possible. But color is hard. Color is expensive for presses. And Sharmila Sen, who's like my totally amazing rock star of an editor at Harvard, really heard me and got it when I said, but look, they're not – the photographs are not going to be illustrations of like what I'm talking about in this paragraph. They're going to function as something standalone. They're like another piece for the reader to see and ponder. They're more like, um, like a, I mean, poem isn't quite right, but they're more like a poem than they are like an illustration. And they aren't, they aren't my field um, photographs. So when I'm in the field, I take photographs, but like they're terrible. I'm not a photographer. None of them are like beautiful. The outfit might be awesome, but my photographs are not that great. And so these are through collaborations with three different photographers on the ground, the three cities. Um, so we would sort of discuss different different trends and they would sort of photograph and we would sort of talk about um you know, what kind of things it would be great to include. And we sort of work together to narrow it down in each location. But I'm, I'm so glad they agreed to do the photographs. I think not only is the book really beautiful, but I think it gives you a much richer understanding of the real, the real variety of things. Right. So I I just flipped open to page 136, which is this great Tissot tour outlets outfit. It's head to toe, like leather. It's like a full, you know, long sleeved, long, long hemline, but it's super tailored and it's leather. And it's just, it's like terrific. Like, um, and I think that a lot of images because the photographers were so talented, really invite you to kind of look at them and sort of ponder them. And they're also really different. The three photographers see different things because they're different sorts of, um, they have a different eye, right? And they have different relationships to the practice on the ground. So the woman who did the Indonesian photographs actually started wearing Jill Bob, started wearing a headscarf in the process of our collaboration, which I didn't realize until the end. She kind of confessed that to me. And so she sort of has this like, oh, this is like so fun and I'm so excited. everything is like exciting and and pairing all the color. Like she has a sort of like very innocence that she brings to her photographs versus the woman in the Tehran photographs are from a really much edgier someone who's really focused on street fashion has done a lot of photography of sort of high-end street fashion and so her images just look different the composition's different um so that was really fun collaboration for me and i'm I'm just really grateful that the press um agreed to include them because i think they make the book much more readable but they're also this whole other data set for you to like Like there's my stories of myself, there's my interviews, there's my focus groups. And then there are these images that, you know, some of them, which are really beautiful and probably something in here appeals to you in a way that aesthetically appeals to you. Like, and that's what the book is about. This is not, um, this is not what people say about what they're wearing, um, but it's also just like what they're wearing and how it looks and how it looks on the street.
1: Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the more edgy side of Tehran photos um, because you, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, sort of punk has a place in this book. Gucci has a place in this book. Athletic wear has a place in this book. I mean, you just sort of see all the trends that we know very well from living in whatever context we live in. Um, and the way I tend to think of fashion and style is just sort of streams that like rivers that sort of rope around the world and sort of um, branch off and form streams and sort of combine together. And again, you do an excellent job of sort of highlighting these global trends that weave towards Muslim-majority countries, but also Muslims contribute to these trends as well. Um, So, I don't know, could you give us a sense of sort of the globalism of Muslim fashion? Yeah, so again, again,
0: if I think of, in this particular book, in in pious fashion, I'm thinking much more like on the ground, like what are the different... um, aesthetic sort of um, like I said, I'm calling aesthetic authorities with the different sorts of sources for what's looking or what's considered cool. Um, but it would be really fun to think about something that was much more tracing those rivers and those streams that you're talking about um, or even trying to trace back. So, I mean, I guess in each of these cases you have certainly a trend, which is couched in some sort of like ethnic cloth, like some sort of local fabric production that gets, as you sort of see globally, a lot of interest in sort of re, um, reclaiming various prints from different regions that also is happening locally. So you have Batik getting integrated into Jill Bob, or that wasn't done, you know, 10 years ago, or... Um, more Afghan sort of looking embroidery um, in Iran, which would have been seen as like kind of low class and not as, but now has this really cool sort of global feeling to it. Um, or the return of like this neo-Ottoman sort of designs in um, in Turkey now that like Ottomanism is cool again and not sort of um, a decline of an empire. So what would be really fun to do is to then trace how those try to trace historically how those show up first locally, and then trickle up to, um, you know, the runway in in New York or in in Paris. I do end the book a little bit with that, thinking about how, um, I think the epilogue starts something like, I've been thinking about this stuff for 10 years, I finally wrote this book, and now, and no one cared anything about it, and now it's like everywhere, and all we see is like this, this marketing in the U.S., for example, of mainstream sort of Muslim fashion and aesthetics as something that's part of our celebration of inclusivity and diversity, but also being used to market mascara for cover girl or um, you know, Nike has Nike doesn't invent uh, athletic um, hijab, but like Nike having athletic hijab is a big deal because that means athletes can get pro sponsorship from Nike in a new way or, you know, the new, the new Barbie doll, all this stuff is sort of um, becoming, um it sort of has a sort of cool cachet in in mainstream more quote unquote secular fashion if that if that is even really a term. Um, so I think it would be really fun to think back and try to trace um if someone, not me someone else can do this project, trace like where the different influences come from and and how do they where do they go mainstream and how do they inform um, what counts as modest fashion outside Muslim communities, but also just what counts as fashion, what counts as cool, what counts as cosmopolitan outside those communities. I, I mean, certainly right now, turtlenecks are in, hemlines are down, like modesty is everywhere, um, everywhere in every sort of in mainstream clothing shops as well as um, on the runways. That's partly cyclical, but it's also, I mean, it's also partly the fact that like, Muslim video bloggers and YouTubers are at the forefront of makeup application and sewing tutorials and they're making they're making it clear this stuff is all cool and modern.
1: Yeah, that's something I've always wondered about sort of where did the tunic and legging thing come from when I sort of grew up with that. Um, <laughs> for example, like that wasn't something that was all like, it wasn't really new to me as someone who, I mean, I spent, um, high school in the UAE where that look was very ubiquitous and that was very common. And also when women wear, um, sort of abayas or longer robes, they wear them open with leggings. That's, that's something that I, I thought about a lot when I saw the trend turning up here. Um, But yeah, actually, that's that's something I also think about a lot is that women really dress for each other and not necessarily just for men uh, because of sort of traditional heterosexual norms. Um, And I often think that women set the standards for one another. And you do a really great job in the book of highlighting all these moments of advice and critique that women give to one another. Um, And we've, again, talked about sort of the universal lessons that one can learn from this book and apply to one's own setting or at least allow one to think differently about one one's own interactions with dress and uh, with gender so what does muslim fashion tell us about how women relate to one another yeah that,
0: that's an inter- that's certainly was an interesting thing that I, I in some ways i was surprised by and then i was like oh why am i surprised by this when i kind of found in all the locations i mean i think partly, you know we enter or we, when I say we, I mean sort of my audience or me when I start this, like a sort of the non-Muslim thinking, okay, this is all fine, but this is about men imposing something on women. And then you start looking at the fashion, none of the conversation that the women is ha- women are having with me, none of the sort of interviews I'm doing in focus groups, no one's talking about like men's expectations on like what looks cute and what is aesthetically pleasing. They're talking about what their friends are telling them or their favorite bloggers telling them. And so there is this sort of like, um, aesthetic performance for each other and just, but, uh, and I was sort of not, that's not surprised so much surprising to me as the fact that there was also this sort of form of slut shaming that, um, and, and sometimes it was like about really like looking like slutty, which is like case I start the, the, um, the Iran chapter with like, really like what you were wearing is like not, Pious, it's not ethical, it's not modest enough. But often it was like, what you're wearing is ugly, what you're wearing is not modern, what you're wearing is not aesthetically pleasing. Like, you have to try harder. And then that came up in all three of the locations. And so, this sort of like harsh critique of each other um, partly, um, as a way to establish what like we're wearing is okay. Cause like what I say she's wearing, is not cute. Then what I'm wearing must be cute. If she's wearing something that's a fashion failure, then I must be doing it right. So in order to establish our own authority in a sort of pretty, pretty tense and maybe anxious sort of creating space, like, am I doing this right? Am I doing it? Uh, religiously enough? Am I doing it modestly enough? Am I doing it fashion forward enough? Um, In order to establish that we're doing it right, we sort of push back against other people who are doing it wrong. Um, Which again, that's, that happens everywhere. Like, again, I think that some of the worst, if I think even it's my own sort of like world, the academic world, I've been told what to wear um, much more often by women than I have by men. So again, that like the comment about not wearing aggressive shoes, that's a direct quote from someone, you know, in a sort of position of authority and institution I've, I've been in, or I've heard, you know, women, senior women telling junior women that they shouldn't wear red lipstick when they go on interview, even if that's like, they're like red lipstick is what they wear every day. And they feel more comfortable wearing a, a red lip, um, or a conversation about their hemline, um, so when you go on an interview, you want to feel comfortable. You want to feel like yourself. And or, but there's also the, so that being told that what you're wearing is like not up to par, you know, it sort of undermines all of that confidence and sort of policing of each other. Um, you know, don't make sure that top button is buttoned, Don't show too much cleavage. Those are conversations often women are having with each other. Um And it's, you know, men may be thinking it too, but they're, they're not, I'm not hearing it from men the same way. At least I have heard once, I heard from a senior academic once when I was on the job market, that it was important that I have two suits for a two day um, interview that my male colleague, didn't matter because no one would pay attention to what he wore. So we could wear the same Navy suit day one and day two. But it was really important that I have two because women would be more and more scrutinized. Um, but other than that, I would say that a lot of this policing happens um, among women. And it, that's a sort of good lesson to learn. It's not this is not a Muslim women problem. This is like this is a woman problem. Like this is part of us adding, you know, smash the patriarchy, whatever, a part of that patriarchal system and the structural injustice when we are doing that to each other and setting up expectations for each other's dress.
1: I'm really glad you said that because I felt like a lot of what I was doing in the wake of the Me Too campaign last month was explaining to women that this campaign was not about men. It was not about convincing men that women are sexually harassed or assaulted, or it wasn't even about this generation of men. It was about women finally supporting one another and realizing that they need to equip other equip other women with the tools to deal with sexual harassment because this is a problem that is not going away. Assault and sexual violence are not going away. So I'm glad you've alluded to this because it's it's something that's been on my mind for a while, and I think it applies to many different circles of of um, many different institutional structures and social structures. Um, yeah, I think people are mis have this
0: misunderstanding that like patriarchy is about. You know, something that men have done to women. Um, so understanding the moments when we are part of the problem are really important. And sometimes that's easier to see when you're not looking at yourself., yes. so it's easier to see. Those Muslim women in Indonesia doing it to each other. Okay, we just saw that. But wait a second, am I also doing that to my friends? Did I make a comment to so and so about, you know, you should be not dressed so slobberly when you teach, you know, your college classes? Like, oh, I did make that comment. It's sort of parallel. So, part of going somewhere else, and the, I mean, I think I believe this also just for education in general, because I, I do some study abroad stuff with my students. I think when you go somewhere else, You can see things that you can then bring back into your life that you just can't see if you stay on the ground. And that's at least that's a helpful lesson for me in terms of thinking about um, the I I mean, I just again, I'm I'm surprised and annoyed that I was surprised that there was so much harsh, harsh judgment of women by other women. They were just really spent a lot of time judging each other you, I mean, the, the cover of the Ala magazine, which I was, when I pulled this out, this magazine, this Turkish magazine, it's so glossy. It's so like fancy. It's like the Vogue of Turkey. I think this must be awesome. And I pull it out at a focus group kind of by mistake at the beginning and they like rip into it. They're like so harsh on the stylist. They think everything about this magazine is like totally failing, um, at what the magazine thinks it's doing. And I was like, Whoa, this is pretty, no, it's just surprised by that interaction. Um, but Of course, we shouldn't be a surprise because this is something that happens, um, you know, everywhere in all sort of all sort of cultural contexts.
1: Yeah. And I do want to note that the word, because you refer to sort of these cases of bad style, both shaming women for dressing, quote unquote, sluttily, but also um, for dressing in ways that aren't just stylish. You use the term bad hijab to sort of um, get at this, 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 the dual, I mean, the the word, again, has a dual meaning. Um, And I just want to mention that that's from the Iran chapter of the book. Um, and it, yeah, it's just so, it's such a, I mean, all these little case studies, especially where you involve yourself. And again, when you reference academic culture in the US, I think are really, that's one of sort of the great things about the book. And I think actually speaks, there's so much practical ethics in the book, just sort of embedded in it that, yeah, I I, I think that's a really good argument against anyone who says, oh, well, this isn't, this is produced by a religious ethicist. I don't really understand why. I mean, this has so much embedded in it that I really enjoyed about it. Um, So we've alluded again to the position of men, and I think a lot of, unfortunately, um, and I've seen this at job talks, I've seen this at interviews for people, I've seen this at um, just brown bag lecture type things. um, There are a lot of cases where someone who works in gender studies, particularly on women's issues, will be told sort of, well, where are the men in the story? Um, And you, again, bring this out very well and refer to men's fashion repeatedly, but, um, another thing you refer to are male authorities, um, just sort of, you check in with them every now and then. Um, and I, yeah, I, I sort of wanted to ask you, what role do you see religious authorities and religious texts playing in Muslim fashions? So I also, I don't want to give them all the credit for, oh, well, they clearly shape all of these, 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 um, these styles and these ways of dress and these, these norms, but there is some hand there.
0: Yeah. And I, so I think, well, um, I mean, so you're right. I do mention in passing, really, some stuff to do with men's fashion. It would be great if someone would do a similar sort of take on um, sort of kind of like the Muslim full book, but let's have a whole book about Muslim dandies. That would be totally um, awesome and interesting. Let's not just always have women's scrutiny of the focus of our conversation. And I only really make passing sort of reference to some of, some of that in this book. But um, you're also right that some of the authorities are what you would call more traditional male authorities. And I when I touch on those, it's not because like I'm identifying them, it's because they've come up through through the fieldwork, right? So what's not in this book is an analysis of what the Quran says about women's clothing. I mean, I know that stuff. I've written about that stuff. The women don't talk about that stuff. So the Quran is not really I mean, it's assumed if you're someone who is Wearing a head covering and mosque clothing, you're beginning with the assumption that the Quran tells you to, or that the tradition tells you to. But the debate isn't at that level. The debate is, what do I wear today? And the answer is what you put on and walk down the street with. Um, but that being said, in di- in the different um, in the different countries, there are different sort of forms of. I maybe say, quote unquote, traditional male authority that have a lot to say and a lot of influence on what women wear. So if we just stay in Iran for a moment, of course, there you have a place where hijab um, is legally compulsory, and you have a lot of clerical production about what that means. So whether it means you can't wear stiletto heels, because they make too much noise, and they draw too much attention, or you can't wear a wolf on your an image of a wolf on your shirt because it's too aggressive and too masculine, or you can't wear a suit because again, that's blurring the line between what men and women should wear. So in each of the cases I touch, uh, as you sort of say, touch down sort of um, different either religious authorities or governmental authorities um, or political authorities uh, when they are really, from the women's point of view, are really helping sort of set the scene about expectations for what they wear. But I would say those are really different. They're kind of, they're different in the three cases though.
1: Well, so again, we've been sort of talking indirectly a lot about modesty and the question of modesty. Um, and I wanted to sort of ask you it head on because I think that um, modest dress is another term, for example, that's thrown out. Um, there's modest fashion week in London. There's modest fashion week in, um, in, a, in, in, Istanbul. I think you mentioned it in the book. Um, so I guess my question just, I mean, take this as a, you know, you can apply this to your case studies. You can also apply this to just as a general ethics question, how does clothing communicate value and does it values and does it always have to communicate values? Yeah. So I think
0: fashion, so fashion theorists have helped me a lot. Um, so outside of religious studies, outside of religious ethics, there's this whole world of, you know, uh, scholarship that sort of has emerged on clothing and fashion theory. And, I sort of buy the sort of um, understanding, sort of sounds a little bit like Goffman, that clothing does communicate. It always um, communicates something. It may not communicate exactly what the wearer wants it to. Uh, Actually, my first, I teach a class on the politics of the veil. And one of the first things we do is read each other's clothing head to toe. And I let the students like read my outfit and they tell me what they think I'm trying to convey with my outfit, which is never what I'm trying to convey. Um, and then they also quite shocked to hear that. I think that their thigh high boots mean one thing when they thought it, they meant something else. So I think there is sort of a communication that, that happens with, um, clothing, whether or not, um, it's always read properly. Um, you know, whether that's always read the way the person's intending it when they put the app together, I think is you know, another question. I think it sometimes communication happens. Um, but I do think that clothing, uh, is one of the ways that, um, we signal not only like identity, but also values. And that's, and that's what the problem with the word modesty is. I mean, I think, I think modesty is a very, very big word. It's very um, vague. can I mean, everything from, just fitting into what the norm is to something that is really about, um, that really has to do with like covering up sexuality. And, um, but I think there's a lot of in between. So I'm not really sure if the word itself means anything, unless you put it in some sort of context, Mm -hmm. Um, modesty, what is defined as modest in these three locations is really different. Like you said, leggings and tunics. So those are all over Indonesia, but leggings, are seen as a little bit more risque in sort of other locations because they show maybe the outline of the body. So is a belt modest? Um, How a belt could get you arrested in Tehran sort of like 10 years ago? Um, What's the role of makeup and other sorts of beauty work um, and and modesty? What's the role of of being attractive and being modest? And I think a lot of those really depend on a context. You have to understand what, what the clothing is doing, what it's pushing back against for women, like what are the traditional understandings, whether or not they're religious or cultural about, um, or expectations rather, not even understandings on women's dress, um, what parts of the body are seen as, um, you know, things that need to be covered, um, which also, I think, differs in, in locations. Um, so yeah, in some ways, modesty is not that helpful of a term to us. Um, I mean, I don't think that I'm not I'm not Muslim, I don't think that I'm particularly pious in what I wear, but I also don't show that much skin, which maybe that is an issue of being, I, I don't show, I don't know if this is a question of being of a certain age or what, I don't know if I would even describe it as modest, but it, it could be read as modest. I often show up for a talk on this book and I look down and I'm wearing, I'm wearing a jumpsuit and a jacket and a big necklace that covers my neckline and what I'm wearing could be considered Um, modest fashion, even though that's not the intention um, I have when I put on more. I'm just trying to look professional or very comfortable or whatever. So I I think that modesty is unfortunately a word that's really being thrown around a lot right now. And sort of, um, I think when it's used to describe like modest fashion week in these different locations, it's really a way to describe religious clothing. Um, And, you know, even that, like, you know, modest clothing in the uh, Jewish Orthodox community is is going to look different and mean different things than it would in in the communities I'm looking at too.
1: Yeah, I re- actually last night I was watching some recap of a modest fashion week. It was I think it was the London one, and the blogger's comment on it was this isn't fa- this isn't modest fashion. And her what, what the term she was underlining was fashion. It wasn't fashionable to her, and I think she'd recognize that whichever designer she was highlighting was really pandering and that she would rather buy her clothes from ASOS or H&M, which, you know, instead of from this, this, this fashion, this um, fashion designer who would probably overprice their clothing and had completely misunderstood what she was looking for in clothing. And it was yeah. this really subtle sort of, it was, it was really subtle. She did it really quickly, this comment. And I, I, I of course spent way too much time thinking about it. Um, another thing, well,
0: I. You know- you're one of my favorite bloggers. Dina Torquía did this super great, harsh reading of the Dolce Gabbana abayas when they all came out. When everyone was like, "Yay, finally, pious fashion's gone mainstream," and she's like, "What are you talking about? It's a three thousand dollar abaya, which looks like an abaya. Like it doesn't look like anything new. That finally they're paying attention to what I, to Muslim women, and all they're doing is just sewing the same thing over again. their really expensive signature print. Like that is not." highest fashion in terms of being fashion forward. All that is, is sticking a really expensive label on a very traditional garment. Um, so, I mean, I think that complaint, we've heard a lot from the Muslim community. And I think that's quite right. I think the other thing is, so I've been talking, or I've been writing a little bit, but also talking a lot with my students about this last season, a project one way, yes. which is had right our first, like, which they get someone who gets sort of um, pitched as our first Muslim modest fashion designer, and that's how she pitches herself. I've designed for the modest consumer, not only Muslim women, but all modest consumers. And yet I'm watching the season thinking her style, her clothing is not always the most modest thing going on the mm-hmm. runway. She likes things super, super, super tight, um, like which other people are playing with volume in different ways. So I think that the word, that modesty itself is not described in aesthetic as easily as we think it might. Because um, there were a lot of very modest designs that went down the runway um, that, you know, were not done with this, not done with any sort of religious intent or any sort of piety behind them. Um, but just were, again, some of the things I started with, like this play of femininity, masculinity, volume and fit, simplicity and embellishment, those are all things that the aesthetic of modesty is doing or can do.
1: Yeah, it's, it's funny, because I remember throwing the word modest fashion out at Rena Lewis, when I interviewed her, and she had the exact same reaction you did, which was, um, you know, I, I don't, I think the term is, is, is part of the capitalist system. I think the term, you know, is, is part of this conversation that's happening on right now, I think it's going to change. And actually, that's what I appreciated when I when your book turned up, um, pious fashion, I think that's a really interesting way of, of getting at, what and then the subtitle, of course, is brilliant, How Muslim Woman Dress. It's very straightforward and to the point. I think it really communicates how um just how how nuanced these questions are and how many things go into communicating uh, one's identity through dress. Um so anyway, I thank you so much for doing this interview with me. It was such a joy. Uh, oh, thank you. We always close the interview by asking you what you're currently working on. Oh, fun. Okay, I am working. I'm actually working
0: on a project that again, I did not, I kind of backed into, wasn't thinking I was going to write this next, this book I'm working on, wasn't expecting to write this book next. But when I ended this book, um, I was thinking a lot about religious appropriation. Um, So cultural appropriation, but of religion, and thinking about sort of, um, especially this last year around issues of like modest fashion. So like, what does it mean to have um, modest fashion, um, uh, sort of marketed by Uniqlo or the gap? What does it mean to have a flag hijab as a sign of solidarity for, you know, the women's March? And so out of that sort of thinking, um, I've just sort of, um, uh, pitched a book to my editor, um, on the ethics of religious appropriation. So the book in my head right now is called Stealing My Religion, and it's going to look at Um, it's going to be actually U.S. focused because I'm sort of, I want to get involved in the conversation that's going on here. There's plenty that happening on the ground here and I want to think about it a little bit more. So thinking about cases of, um, I don't want to say stealing, but borrowing of religious practices, ideas, um, objects by non-believers in the U.S. context. So everything from like yoga to male circumcision and using that as a, as a way to think about the ethics of cultural ca- cultural appropriation more broadly. So I'm super excited about that before I started working on that.
1: no, yeah, that's really exciting just because I think it's something I try to think about every day um, and it definitely, and it, I think a lot of vlog- bloggers and bloggers have done a great job of highlighting this and highlighting sort of what goes into culturally appropriating something especially because this issue gets conflated so many different times with political correctness and trigger warnings and there are elements of both that can overlap yeah. with these things but people don't understand that they have very different connotations and they speak to different elements of power and oppression.
0: Really confusing. So if I'm sitting here as a white person of privilege, it's hard to figure out what I'm allowed to do and what I'm not allowed to do. And thinking through some cases are black and white and some cases are more gray and thinking through both. I mean, I think this book is really going to be a book about the ethical ambiguity of it. So like, um, uh, what would be an example? Um, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, if you are want to be part of that 12-step program, you have to accept some sort of higher power in God. And they say that you can actually, even people who are atheists and agnostics can do well in the program. Um, so thinking about that as like, do you really want to say that nobody who is like not a believer can be part of the 12-step program? And also religions don't think about themselves that way. It's a little bit of a more complicated issue than racial borrowings, for example, right? Because religions in some ways often want to bring more believers into the fold. So they're happy, just just borrow a little, but that's okay because maybe at some point you'll convert in. Um, so I think it's a way to think through sort of some of the more um, pieces at the fringe too because we say cultural appropriation, or at least my students do, and then they stop talking and they stop thinking about it. Um, and they feel like it's off limits to them. And I worry that that can also lead to people not wanting to engage in other sort of cultures and, or other sort of people because they see it as off limits themselves. So that's sort of where I'm, yeah, that's what I'm hoping to think about to this next book.
1: Yeah. My, my, my sort of sentiment towards this is as long as you acknowledge the source and educate yourself about it, you can really go quite far, but also there's so much that is integrated into everyday life that we don't realize comes from somewhere else. and again, I think this is a question of education and people who have the tools, such as you sort of bringing us both the questions but the material and the content. Um, so thank you so much. This was really fabulous and I really enjoyed this. And congratulations yeah. on the book. It's beautiful. Oh, thank you. thanks thanks I enjoyed the conversation too. thanks for
0: the thanks for reaching out.